Welcome to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Your hosts are freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield, plus videographer and host of the YouTube channel Craving Cars, Corey Pratt, and 35-year radio veteran, book publisher, and vehicular village idiot, Mark Catfish Groves. Let's rev up the conversation time for driven radio show hey car fiends and gearheads welcome to driven radio your weekly automotive happy hour i am brett hatfield here with our engineer and co-host mr mark groves Yo. and mr Corey pratt of craving cars on youtube yes we are coming to you from driven radio studios in beautiful overland park kansas maybe a little soggy a little wet today. it's uh yeah it was even sprinkling just a little bit when i was coming over a bit still felt good though yeah, um, it feels really good I, I have so many questions for you, Mr. Mark, but we're going to get to that in just a second. <laughs> you can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show, and listen everywhere fine podcasts are heard. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to tell your gearhead friends. If there's something you would like to hear more of, or if you have an interesting story, please, by all means, tell us. Send your emails to brett at drivenradioshow.com. Gentlemen, are you still moving, Corey? No. Oh, did you do oh, you're in? Did you do anything fun this week? Uh, I, I finished moving in on Saturday. Now, the place is a mess. It's going to well, be. Well, sure. Yeah. That's uh, the nature of moving. But I did actually do something car-related on Sunday. Do tell. I went to the all-German car show, the, the, the annual car show that they had, and this was at the new location for the museum, the underground oh, thing. Oh, oh, I've not been there yet. How was it? And it, it was pretty good. It, uh, they, they have the top, the, the only part that's outside. The top the, deck. The, the top deck, deck. Uh, the, the parking lot kind of thing. Yeah. And it was, it was filled. Lots of Porsches, lots cool. of Audis, lots of BMWs. Not well, so much on the Mercedes and the Volkswagen side. What's the coolest thing you saw? My car. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, no, actually, you know what was actually the coolest thing to me? It was, it was a, a, a white 911 Turbo. Which was the last of the air cooled sitting right next to the very first variation of the nine nine six turbo. Okay, so and, and they were I, sitting right. They're both white and they're sitting right side by side. Oh, each nice. other. Ninety eight nine nine three right uh-huh. next to a ninety nine 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 six. Yes, the only difference. Well, it, was it was actually a, I think a no, two thousand. It was or a two thousand. Still, they didn't do though. the turbos right off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but it was still cool to see. Look at the differences between these two cars. This yeah. was one. This was the very next model, no. and they were so different. And then you really see the size difference too, actually. Yeah, the nine nine three is a much smaller car. Yeah, even though ninety six is not very big, because no. it's, it's even smaller compared to the newer nine nine twos, but it's still quite larger than a nine. The nine eleven just looks like it continues to melt. It gets wider and longer <laughs> yeah, and <boom>. lower. <laughs> That's why you don't leave it on the dashboard. Uh-huh. Can't leave it out in the sun. Yeah. But I kept looking back at those two cars, just like looking at the two, going back and forth. And, and they were both in mint shape, so they no, both I, looked great. I absolutely get where you're coming from, that when you walk into my garage, the 60's there, the 65 is there, and you look at them, and they look like they are completely different in every way. Yes. And you think, these are only five years apart. Yeah. Crazy, so. right? Crazy. And and then and then there's much much more cool car stuff to come. But I'm guessing there's a this video weekend, coming. Um, well, actually, the German show. Guess what? I left my camera at home. You went as a what? civilian. I did. 
Now, I did the first time getting out in a while, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to go enjoy these cars. I there did that go. at Old Moray, yeah. and it was just, it was so much fun, yeah. and it was easy, and you didn't feel the the, the onus. I said onus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you feel your onus in public? Uh, you d- you don't feel like you have to capture everything and mm-hmm. walk around and do interviews and all that. And it was just kind of freeing. It was really enjoyable. So yeah, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. So similar. I didn't have to come home and uh, get everything off my memory cards and start feeding it into the editor and just I got the just Dude, cool. to come home. I'm happy for you. Uh, but uh, this weekend there will be a lot of filming um, that'll be happening. And for anybody who wants to know what this is going to be. I'll just have to tune in next week to the Durham Radio Show. Are you going oh, to Lake Garnett? No. No? Mm-mm. You have something else in mind. A little bit more excited, and it's three days long. Okay, cool. Well, anxious to hear about that next week. There you go. Like Kawakin? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yes? They found your key. Yes. Okay. And uh, and I did get oh, an yeah. email yesterday, and the bike is ready for me. There Hallelujah. Were, there were some other things they discovered. They, they did me right. Okay. Uh, Hickory, uh, what is it? Hickory Street Moto? Uh, Hickory Street Union. They smack you like upside that. the head. Uh, they did. Nuh-uh. They did it just well, they didn't right. Do you right. It's a very just cool kidding. place uh, where people can, you know, drop thirty bucks and for a month you can roll in, pop your bike up on a rack. They have the tools there. They have all the <laughs> oh, stuff. Oh, oh, cool, cool. And it's uh, down in the West Bottoms. Very cool place. Very cool people. And they oh, took nice. over when uh, we, we left. You know, a yes. <laughs> We left the carburetor. It's two-sided carburetor a, a, in a pieces. Very, a and, very well-intentioned friend who yeah. may have gotten in a little yeah, over Yeah, God his bless head. his heart. And, uh, and so they took over. And it, it took a little while. There were a couple of little weird little hiccups. Not bad, though. And then when I got the thing back and I looked at the um, uh, what all they had to do, they also sent me another text, which is one that was a bit surprising, eye-opening. Because they said, hey, uh, have you taken these wheels off sometime? Yeah, you had tires well, put on. Yeah, I had tires put on. Why? Oh, your front fork is missing a nut. Oh, dear. Pardon? The outside right side nut. Excuse me? Not on the bike. Excuse me? And uh, and how many months have I been riding it like that? Uh, That's so, terrifying. Most of the time you riding it, Talk right? about, I, I puckered up, my ears popped. Because the air pressure dropped when I read that. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. So uh, uh, I texted back, you know, hey, yeah. And told that would, it'd where be I, very nice if you would put that back on. They they were like, you know what? It's a pretty common size thread and bolt. So we'll uh, we'll go ahead and take care of it. So they took care of that. Wow. They had to, you know, put all uh, put in all new antifreeze, et cetera. But uh, it was like uh, 550. And I was I was expecting That's every really? place I checked at before even going there to try to save a few bucks mm-hmm. was above six. Okay. So with all that they had to do and they had to go through and you know refine a puzzle that we left laying on a terry cloth. But this yeah. this will probably th- this will be what the bike really needed. It'll yes. make it. I'm sure it will feel different to you when you get it back. I still. Want to go ride with you, yes. yeah. Mister Grove? We need to do that here in the fall here, before, right? yeah, yeah, before uh, it gets ridiculously chilly. Well, you, so yes, you know me, I'm dumb. I'll ride when it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'll ride when it's cold and I have an inadequate protection and there's a good chance I'm going to freeze my brain before I get where I'm going. The the best thing I got is I can take the top and doors off the Jeep and still ride with you and I don't have a bike. I'll pretend there's two <laughs> wheels on it. If you knew how to ride, I would let you take one of mine. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's hilarious. I'll be I, cold too. In an emergency, <laughs> I, I, can, I can ride a bike good enough in an emergency to possibly get somewhere and hopefully not crash because okay. I would go slow. But other than that, for cruising, no. No, I'm not. I'm not. So I'm going to drop enough. down there and pick up the bike. It should be Friday night if I okay. can get out of work early enough. It's supposed to be warm this weekend. It's supposed to be a good weekend to ride. I'll, I'll be helping my mama. I'm going to be painting on her house oh, and boy. doing some stuff down in Branson. Um, I'll and, say hi to Shoji Tabuchi for yeah, you. You know, if, if you wait, Bang. if you wait a few days, I'll go to Branson with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, uh, and we have done this weekend. We we have to discuss <laughs> that for next week because I'm taking off on Wednesday. Oh, that's right, because down in Branson is the uh, uh, the big auction. Yeah, uh, the Cox auction is coming up. Oh. Uh, it, Jim and Kathy Cox been putting on this auction forever and ever. They've got a great docket lined up. Uh, a couple hundred really good-looking cars, and I think there's more to be posted before I get down there. Where are they doing it at? Uh, they Do are doing it at the Branson Convention Center. <gasps> Downtown! And hey, I, you're going to be right down in the heart of it. And there's a Hilton attached to yep. it, and that's where I'm staying, which means I can drink profusely and not worry about having to get back to the hotel room. I can now, just stumble my way there. Imagine a 16-year-old version of me in a 1955 Plymouth and down where the waterfront is used to be just uh, some stone steppy things and an old ball field I'm already that scared. led to the water. And I used really? to just cruise the loop there. Nice. Mm-hmm. Friday and Saturday nights, man. Oh, cool. yeah. We were there a couple months ago. So Terrified yeah, cool. of girls, but oh, so fascinating. <laughs> not but much, you got to cruise, though. Not much has changed. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. Well, uh, I got the 65 Corvette back uh, yes. Friday, cool. and we have just, Rhonda and I have just driven the thing everywhere. It's been really oh. nice. The top's been down. We've run all over everywhere. And then yesterday, rather than working like I should have been, I played hooky with my dad. Uh, <laughs> we took the 65 and drove down to the warehouse and took the hardtop off his 65. Then we got in the Impala and went and drove around and went and had lunch and then raced back to the warehouse as it started to sprinkle because mine was sitting out in the parking lot with the top down. Don't. Yeah, that sort of stuff. And just <laughs> generally really had a great time. I, I, I was supposed to be working and I didn't. That was work. What you were doing was investigative reporting. You were creating a series. Me and my dad mm-hmm. and my Corvette mm-hmm. and my Impala. Mm-hmm. That's the name of it. Well, it's his, it's his <laughs> Impala now. It was, uh, and my dad's Impala. It's research for work. It, yes. And they're, uh, I'm, I don't know if he's going to keep it or not. Oh wow, man! Well, I, you know he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of toys. He's got a yeah. lot of toys. Yeah, I I introduced him to bring a trailer, and now he's got a lot of toys. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what happens. We'll 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 see how that works out. Uh, Vlad may or may not continue to be part of the family. Understood. In the news, there's a new Lotus on the horizon at a really horrific tragedy at Germany's Nürburgring. And how Lamborghini has resurrected a legend. In segment two, we will be talking to auto journalist Andy Reid about using tuition to buy exotic cars, what it's like to be a concourse judge. He did. He took his college tuition and he bought something awesome. And uh, why he's optimistic about the future of the collector car world. Let's get to the news. Well, from road and track, the Lotus 
I don't mean to interrupt you yeah. right as you jump in. All the news this week is from Road and Track because they had all the good stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, then there you go. Well, there thank you. you. Thank you, Road and Track. Thank you, Road and Track. Uh, so all the news today brought to you by Road and Track. The Lotus Emira starts at $74,900 in the United States. Have you seen the picture of this car? I have. It's been a while, though, and I don't know if that was the finished one or if it was the concept version. Oh, it's cool, and it's curvy, and it's Lotus. And yeah, it was It was a little out. bit ago. Is so, it weird? Does it kind of look like an Acura? Uh, no. Like the NSX? You watch your mouth, sir. It's weird. <laughs> you you shut your dirty hole. <laughs> Bite your forked tongue, Go fund that, Go drive that damn Chrysler and let the big boys talk. That's yeah, weird. Jump on your 55 Plymouth. That is pretty. It cruise. is. I'm sorry okay. to interrupt you twice, Corey. Have at it. <laughs> yeah, sorry well, when Lotus uh, revealed the Emira uh, back in July, uh, pricing for this British market indicated that it will become under eighty grand. Mm-hmm. Today, Lotus has confirmed that the base uh, one will start at seventy four thousand nine hundred in the U.S. market. So that is below eighty. For a, how about that for a rear engine yep. near exotic or exotic car. Yeah, Lotus is on there. 75 yeah. grand is a lot of money, but that's not much compared to it's the other package stuff you're out gonna, there. It's a package you're going to get. Looks yeah. like a Dodge Stealth. So, <laughs> does. Now, if you're wanting to Someone, shut up, Mark. S- someone's going to whip a message beer bottle at, at you. Yeah. At, at, at Brett at com. Okay. Um, <laughs> those wanting the most affordable uh, Emira possible will have to wait. So that's 74,900 base one. They'll have to wait because the first production run – Will be the launch edition cars, the V six spec ones, and they start at ninety three six. Yeah, but they'll but probably have transmission. a lot of cool stuff on. Oh them. yeah, manual transmission, uh, some some uh, other performance options as standard, like the driver's pack mm-hmm. with an optional set of Michelin Pilot Cup Sport or Sport that's twenty five hundred dollars with the tires. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Well, and the way they read it, it's optional set. So does that mean you get a second set of wheels know. too? I don't know. It didn't. It wasn't real clear in the article, so okay. I, I don't It'd be know. interesting to see because that would be almost the most perfect like I everyday I, slash I'm, track car. I'm finding I don't even care. I just want to drive <laughs> yeah. this sucker. Right. Uh, uh, cars start production in fall twenty two. Okay. Uh, with another first edition powered by the AMG sourced four cylinder coming later the year. Ooh, that won't be bad either. Um, no. If you can wait till twenty twenty three, the base Amir will debut with at that seventy four nine price tag it mm-hmm. puts it fourteen thousand four hundred above where Porsche currently lists its base three hundred horsepower Cayman, which yeah. is its main competition in North America. So the American uh competes more directly though with the Cayman S uh and the GTS yeah. with the four liter, uh which start at seventy two thousand five and the GTS is at eighty seven thousand four hundred. Um but uh the Amir will be Lotus's last last mm gasoline-powered car before the all-electric future. But it, without having seen any road tests or anything yet, at least on the spec sheet, it looks rather amazing. Yes. And, you know, all the Lotus stuff is really light. I doubt it's more than 2,800 pounds or so, which means... Being Lotus, it's going to yeah, be light, right? They're going to fly. And I'm really excited to see one. It's a lot of car for the money when you start talking did, did about Did you that. get the power ratings and all that stuff? Do you know what it's going to be yet? Because well, last one I saw, I don't know what it was going to be. Either, I'm, I'm not sure. I know it's north of three bills. Oof. Okay. And so 300 yeah. horsepower when you're in a car that light. And what's uh, so now? Yes, the base came is 300. The Cayman S though is what 350, 360 or something like yeah. that. 365 or whatever it is. 
And so I'm thinking it's going to be at least that. I'm waiting for and, you to bring up the fact that your Cayman would kick its ass. Well, <laughs> I don't know, I don't but say anything I do have a manual powered, yeah, a there bit you more go. power uh, than their typical Cayman S, and mine's still fairly light, but is it going to be lighter than this car? I don't know. It won't be any sexier than yours. I like mine a lot, actually. So yeah. I'm not going to disagree with that, so yeah. thank you. There thank you, you go. very much. Well, on a less fun note, <laughs> one killed, seven injured in a pileup during the Nürburgring uh, oh, public God. lapping session. This was the public uh, version. Well, that's uh, a great yeah. thing about Nurburgring. I think you pay thirty, thirty-five bucks. It's it's euros. It's very little money, yes, and they it let is. you go run that thirteen-mile track. Dude, I think it literally is like ten or fifteen I euros. Remember watching, and they go, Here you go. When and you told me about it, I watched some videos, and I'm like, yeah. that that's like a that's a mobile home. Yeah, going right. I'll be damned. <laughs> that, yeah, they'll that's let kind of fun. They'll let you run uh, just so long as you. Oh, got a seatbelt. I think a helmet. I believe yeah. so. I believe you had a helmet. Uh, it was during a, and I'm so sorry for the, 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 the American tourist and farting, uh, and like Farfik Nugan, <laughs> it's it's tourist and farting. Uh, public lapping session. Five people were seriously injured. Two left with minor injuries. A Porsche 911 GT3 was running it at speed on the track when it began to smoke and pour coolant onto the surface. Ooh. Once the Porsche driver noticed the problem, they pulled off the track, very good, got onto the grass. Uh, by then, a large amount of coolant was on the surface, making its way onto tires and windshields of cars that were following behind, and a number of drivers were struggling to maintain. A tow truck arrived, removed the disabled Porsche and other cars involved. Uh, and that's when the uh, Mazda MX-5... Miata, yeah. Yeah, the Miata... Uh, hit the recovery vehicle and ignited into flames. Jeez. Ten vehicles were reportedly involved in the incident, including a C7 Corvette, two motorcycles, Ooh. and a track uh, set of track regular familiar with the incident. It was really awful, too, because that Miata smacked the tow truck, lifted it up, and went right underneath and then caught fire. Jeez, how fast was that Miata going? Uh, oh, well, you think it's this little wedge, hey. and it's this wedge underneath a taller truck just i don't know they're lightweight so i would think it would just bounce off the truck myself but i guess not no well i think he came around and got it you know slid and got into it but uh then it becomes a flaming doorstop yeah organizers ended the public lapping session closed the track following the pile up pile up and the uh the driver killed in the pile up was a nurburgring or regular oh that's unfortunate we are we're sorry to hear wow. about that. Yeah, I, I, that's so bad. You know, you can go on YouTube, and you can watch hours and hours and hours of people, yeah, screwing up and panicking at Nurburgring, and then bad, disastrous things happen. Yeah, and you know, I, 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 the the yeah. Ups, the yeah. upside and downside is, yeah, you can get on the track for not very much money and mm-hmm. go run your car and see what it's like. The downside is, just because you can get on the track doesn't mean you're qualified to be on the track. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I mean, because I obviously I've seen many people spin off, hit the wall, or just in the grass, mm-hmm. but I've never actually read of one of a public session of someone dying. Well, and I know it's, it's probably happened, but I just don't ever see or read of that. Every one of us who owns a sports car or a performance car or a fast motorcycle or even a not so fast motorcycle, we all think, Oh man, I'm better than everybody else. I'm a better driver. I'm, I'm a great driver until <laughs> the moment something goes wrong. Yeah. And then you find out mm, maybe not. 
Yeah, I'm not, not so much. I'm not so good. Yeah. Why is my butt Oopsie. in front of me? <laughs> well, <laughs> this is an issue. <laughs> why, why am I so puckered up? I'm not going to get yeah. the upholstery out of my crack for a week. Yeah, what a crap Valencia and, leather, leather for yeah, two weeks. And, and, there's and so I, many people. It's not like you can go, I hope no one saw that. Yeah, and I, I've, I've been there. It's difficult for me to admit, but I have to. Uh, yeah, I thought I was a lot better driver than I was on more than yeah. one occasion. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, you're in a car, and like you said, your your butt's leading you, and you've, you're staring where you've been. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Not good. It took Lamborghini 25,000 hours to remake the original Countach LP500. In March 1971, Lamborghini changed the supercar world as we know it. The company revealed its idea car, a polarizing mid-engine concept called the LP500 Countach. The car world went nuts, and you should, because nothing oh, yeah. looked like this. Nope. Nothing. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Reveling at the impossibly wide and sharp proportions that would eventually make it into production. After the reveal in 1971, the LP500 would be used in crash testing in March of 74. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time. Right now, it seems criminal. <laughs> and it was scrapped shortly thereafter. Uh, Fast forward to 2017. This is where we get into, if you got enough money, you can pretty well have any damn thing you want. True. In 2017, an important Lamborghini customer who hasn't been named asked the brand to recreate the legendary Geneva show car from scratch. What followed was over 25,000 hours of sourcing original documents, analyzing photos, and painstaking physical labor to build a faithful replica to the car. This guy now has... A one-of-one 71 Lamborghini LP500 made over the last four years. Holy crap, dude. The work was carried out by Lamborghini's Polo Storico factory restoration team and involved reconstructing the LP500's unique chassis and sheet metal for the mechanical components, such as the drivetrain, Original Lamborghini spare parts were used. If spare parts weren't available, they simply created them from scratch. What Jeez. kind of 3D printer do they have? I don't know, but you know, a you good can, one. You can yeah. make about anything anymore. I'm guessing this guy, you know, Jesus borrows money from him. <laughs> The Countach reinvented high-performance cars, said CEO Stephen Winkleman, in a statement. It became an icon in terms of stylistic language that even today, after decades, still inspires contemporary Lamborghinis, bringing the reconstruction of the first Countach to the concept class of the Concorso de, de Eleganza Villa de Este. Oh, have you ever seen pictures from that, the Villa de Este? Mm. And the year we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of this model is something extraordinary because it allows us to admire the legendary 1971 LP500 in person for the first time in decades. That's awesome. The guy, and we'll have the the links on readthedriven.com and the pictures. It is startling how pretty this is. Imagine the Countach you know from the 80s, 
and then strip away the wings and the big inlets and everything else and get it down to its simplest, purest form. It is just beautiful. That is a hot little wedge. Yes, it is. And it's a doorstop, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it so <laughs> it's, is, man. <laughs> it, it's, it, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, the designer on that was Marcelo Gandini, and he did a remarkable job. Yeah, he did. Uh, that is just gorgeous. Coming up in segment two, we will be talking to auto journalist Andy Reid about using tuition to buy exotic cars, <laughs> what it's like to be a Concord judge, and why he's optimistic about the future of collector cars. All this and much more is coming up on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio Show, coming to you from Driven Media World Headquarters in lovely Overland Park, Kansas. Our special guest this week, he's written for everybody. He's written for everybody. Everybody. Uh, is auto journalist Andy Reid. Andy is a certified sports car fanatic who travels the world to see what's crossing the auction block and what's hot, what's not, what's cool. He's written for Grassroots Motorsports, Racer, Vintage Motorsport Magazine, Jaguar World, the Haggerty Online, uh, the website. He has he's the auction columnist at Classic Motorsports Magazine for the last twelve years. Currently, he writes for ClassicCars.com, and he's the auction columnist for Magneto and Tazio magazines. Andy is a licensed collector car insurance specialist at Hayden Wood Insurance. He works with Haggerty, Grundy, American Modern, and AIG. Is there anybody you don't work for? <laughs> uh, uh, in the insurance space or in general? Period. <laughs> Period. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't work for Haggerty. So. Okay. Well, yeah. Andy, welcome us, to Driven you know, Radio. I will eventually. <laughs> Knitting Weekly, though. Man, huge. That, that's a hell of a <laughs> resume, and I had to cut a lot of stuff off just to make it Make it fit. Well, to make it fit on the page. Uh, how how have you managed to do so much in the collector car world? Well, it's interesting. Uh, my first my first career was in the film industry, and I left that to go to the internet industry. And then in 2001, there wasn't an internet industry. And so I'm like, hey, what am I going to do? And so I like cars. I owned a bunch of cars at that point. And I figured I'll write about cars. And and was too stupid to know it was a stupid thing to try to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> Nerds is and bliss. People ask me all the time, how do you do this? I'm like, yeah, I have no earthly idea how you can get involved with this. <laughs> uh, but then I just called up uh, Victory Lane Magazine, and I said, hey, you know, I would like to write with you, write for you. And a guy named Art Eastman, who used to be the editor of Vintage Motorsport, told me to call him. And I said, okay. And so I called him up, and they said, sure, we'll pay you, we'll pay you to do stories. And I thought, hey, this is great. And they pay about $30 to $50 a story mm-hmm. with no expenses. And uh, they don't, and they take about a year to pay you. Oh. And it was interesting. I was in my like fifth or sixth assignment for them. I was at the uh, race at VIR and uh, as media covering it for them. And I was sitting with Tim Sutter from Grassroots and Classic. Yeah. Talking about cars, I had not met him. I'd read the magazine for years, and he's, we're just talking and talking. He's like, "Holy crap! You know more about cars than I do, and I know about cars. Uh, you want to write 
for our magazine? I said, sure. You know, he, he goes, you can be our auction specialist. And that was that. And, uh, and it was my first way. I had, then I had a, uh, every other month, you know, uh, six times a year column going. And I walked into a column, which was a great way to be able to walk in. And as I crafted that column and learned some more things, I didn't know how to write, of course, because I had, you know, I had got a media arts degree, for God's sakes, in film. And, <laughs> With a minor in ambiguity. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, but I, when I, my first year out there, first year doing it was 2001, and I went to Monterey and drove out there and ran into, I met John Lamb from Road and Track. Oh, okay. And I had always read John Lamb. I didn't know who he was. Keith, Keith introduced me. I Keith, Keith introduced me to John. John introduced me to blah, blah, blah. It was one of those things. It was this Bonham's dinner they had uh, on Wednesday night a uh, long time ago. And they don't do it anymore. And uh, John was like, well, how do you like this writing thing? I said, well, you know, I'm, I, I get a lot of red lines through my stuff from my editor. and I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. And he goes, well, send it to me and I'll, I'll, I'll proof it for you. And he was still working for full time for Road and Track, right? Mm-hmm. And so I sent my copy to John Lamb, and he went through the copy and sent me back and said, "This is good. This is terrible. Tell me what you mean by this." You know, really good notes, and uh, and it improved. And I sent the next one back to David Wallens. He went, "Wow, this is pretty good." And it kind of went from there. And so for like oh, cool. about nine months, I sent my copy to John, and he would proof it. Wow, nice. That's awesome. Heck of a way to learn. Yeah. And he was so nice. And I'm like, this is my one of my heroes in the space. And he's proving my copy. How did this happen? <laughs> it, so. is, it is kind of interesting, the people we get to meet doing this job. And you, you think, oh, all of these people are out of reach. I'll never meet anybody like that. And, uh, and, and then you just bump into them, and they're, they're sweet. They're nice people. It's, it's really amazing how small the collector car world is and how many of the people you've put on a pedestal turn out to just be really nice human beings. Yeah, I mean, the race car drivers alone I've met. I raced for a while. That's in, that was in that resume somewhere down there, too. Mm-hmm. But um, but not like sports car racing. But, uh, you know, you get to be – I mean, I mean, I was pals with Sterling. That he, you know, it was it was just really cool. My wife made his favorite cookies. And so he'd send oh. him cookies a bunch of times a year. And uh, Yoakam Moss and Tommy Kendall and, and, and not just naming, dropping names. These are just pals. And um, uh, Hobbs. Uh, Pete Brock. I mean, these are people yeah. I read about when I was a kid, and now we hang out socially. It's it's really weird. It's <laughs> very, very strange. And, you know, it, it's just not what I – I never expected that. It's kind of that bonus we get that people don't understand. So where did your passion for cars come from? Is it somebody in your family or somebody you were close to? Is well, it something that's been lifelong? Yeah, I had an uncle that was really into cars. My dad was in the cars until he got married. Then he wasn't in the cars. He had a birdcage, an honest-to-God birdcage, Maserati birdcage in the 50s. He had a 356. He had a 300SL going lightweight, mm-hmm. lightweight alloy body because he bought him when he was in the Air Force in the 50s in Europe. And then he got married, and he bought a series of Lincolns. Uh, uh, yeah, Lincolns. Uh, he had a, he inherited his dad's carnival business when he got out of the air force and he was in based in Michigan. And if you did business, I guess in Michigan at that point, 
uh, you couldn't have Mercedes or a Porsche and do business in Detroit area. Yeah, it just you were. Oh, it was no, just point. it was yeah. it was a thing, and I I can't imagine that thing. But I remember, I remember thinking these cars were terrible when I was a kid. Uh, my uncle Jerry uh, had cool cars. He had Mercedes and Jaguars and things like that, E types, really cool stuff. Oh, very okay. And, and so I hung out with him some, and got to ride in those cars. And uh, just got addicted to cars from that from like like five years old. And one of the things, one of the interesting things about the whole carnival business is, you know, you're on. My parents would truck me around around to the mid different midways. They would go to the different towns. We were in Waterford, Michigan, and there's these guys that used to have a stunt team called. They were Dan Fleener's Hurricane Hell Drivers. And since my dad owned the carnival, he got me to ride along with those guys through the flaming hoop through the flip of the car, jumping the other cars, all this stuff. <clears throat> they put my little gold helmet on and I jumped in the car with, you know, no shoulder belts, just lap belts. Oh, and I went on a ride with the Hurricane Hell Drivers and it kind of, it, it, it was it seriously imprinted. That uh, sounds like the responsible parenting. <laughs> <laughs> now you go to prison, right? Like, <laughs> And, and the guy was like, are you scared? I'm like, no, this is awesome. <laughs> this is so much fun. Can we do it again? And, it, and so uh, and I never had a healthy fear response. But uh, that is that is what that's that's that helped that come out with my Uncle Jerry's imports and things. Uh, it really drove it. Uh, it it kind of imprinted. It made me like this stuff. So. You've owned a ton of cars. Uh, you sent me a list of all the cool stuff you've had, or at least some of it. But I think the most impressive one, the most impressive buy out of that, was trading your college tuition for your second car. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I stole my college money and bought a three, bought a Series One three thirty GT two plus two. I had actually had a Porsche nine twelve and. I had a Fiat, then I had this Porsche 912 that I fixed up that I really never drove because it was a mess. And I took the monies from that and the college funds and bought that car and drove it home and got kicked out of the house. Oh. Yeah, you showed up at home with a 66 Ferrari and you were a little surprised. <laughs> Your parents yeah, weren't they, receptive. They, they, my stuff was on the front porch. and uh, <laughs> I, I, It was a 2 plus 2, so I literally slept in the car for about a week and a half. Um you know, I, I think I underdid it because uh, I screwed up. I had a 55 Plymouth that uh, I was, you know, I had like an eighth of an inch of clutch left and $600 to my name, so I bought a stereo <laughs> because uh, I had to have it, you know, it, it had great speakers. That's and, a- uh, boy, my dad, uh, that, that feeling of disappointment when you walk in, he's looking at it, really? You did what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't really get much out of second gear, and that was a long drive, that three and a half hours. Yeah, I bet. And he's like, okay, let's talk. So the- no, I found his name and took it and, and went. And my I had a boss. I worked at this Porsche shop in high school, this guy named Chuck Croto in, in Tucson. And he, oh, I still know him, great friends. He's pretty much my car dad. But he completely bought into it and drove me to L.A. and we got the car. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> was that your only Ferrari? Uh, no, I've had a bunch. I've had other stuff. Um, Mundial, 308 GT4, pair of Daytonas. Um, a pair of Daytonas. Yeah. A, 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 a coupe and a chop roof. Um, wow. Yeah, so he's owned everything cool. Uh, we're all right. They were cheap, though. They were they were way... This is like 2000. I got the, the first one was in 01, and they were inexpensive then compared to what they are now. Yeah. A fraction of what they are. 
a fifth of what they cost now, sixth of what they cost now. They are 80, 90. If you had to take a stab at it, how many cars have you owned? hundred, you know, people say someone, Scott Lear once when I worked for grassroots said, yeah, I've had 200 cars. I'm like, I haven't owned 200 cars, Scott, but I was adding it up a little bit today and I kind of got lost track of it and, uh, over a, well over a hundred, okay. um, like 120, 130 and, 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 and things that aren't normal, like not like a yeah. Honda prelude or a Honda Accord. Okay. It, so what are some of the cooler ones? 15 K cars. <laughs> um, Aside from a pair of Daytonas, what are the cooler yeah, ones? Besides the Ferrari, seventy-three nine eleven RS with the wrong motor, but a right RS motor, oh. just not its motor. Uh, when they were again mid nineties, when they were inexpensive, when no one, wow. when everybody at Porsche World said, "Oh, it's worthless without the right." Yeah, motor. Corey's going to need a little alone time now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the right motor because it was an RS motor, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I didn't care. I was like, hey, this is a, a white with blue stripe RS, a legitimate RS with a legitimate RS case. I don't, and, 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 and injection, I don't care. And so and everybody made fun of me at the Porsche Club. I'm like, ah, but I have one and you don't. So shut up. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that was neat. I had this amazing thing. I had a 1973 and a half 911T in glacier blue metallic. Dang. Oh my God. Uh, that was restored by Porsche Special Wishes Department. I had this in the early 2000, like 1999, and this thing was glorious because it was as glorious as Porsche Special Wishes Department can make a car. And it was a lovely thing. Uh, I had a Aston Martin DBS, Aston Martin DB7. And the DB7, despite its many flaws, uh, was just a car that truly, I, I love that thing. It it's, was amazing. It's still an Aston Martin. Yeah, and it's and you know I've had even with the town stuff in the garage, and you, you I remember when I first had a Ferrari in the garage, I went, "This is really cool." And I look, this, this is in here. Wow, this is this is in here. You know, as an adult, not as a dumbass sixteen uh, year old. <laughs> yeah, no um, kidding. You don't really get it. It doesn't impact you the same way. And uh, and that thing was horrible. That three thirty was a brown, terrible car. It was brown, Marrone, which is brown. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and so I remember when I got the, when the Aston came in there though, and I remember it, it came out, I bought it in, uh, where did I buy it? I bought it in Portland and drove it to Monterey about nine years, 10 years ago. And I remember the whole time, it was the first car I'd ever had of any of this stuff that people would drive down the road, get, doing their selfies out the window, trying to take pictures of your car as you went by. <laughs> Wow. And it wasn't that expensive. I think it was like 25 G's, 30 G's. And uh, so it wasn't an expensive Aston, uh, but it had that much impact. <clears throat> and people just thought it was amazing. I, I'd stop at a rest stop and I'd go to use the restroom because I'm trying to bust to Monterey. And people would I'd come out of the restroom and there's like 12 people asking me about the car. It was just bloody. I drove it to Monterey. When I got to Monterey that year, I got there on Monday night and parked in front of the Crown and Anchor pub to have dinner because it's one of those things I do. I met some pals and we came outside and there's a British guy out there. I'm like, Hey, you know, he's like, is this yours? I said, Oh, yes, it is, sir. And I said, he goes, how do you like it? And I said, it's probably the most beautiful car I've ever owned. He goes, thank you so much. Ian <laughs> Callum. And, and it was Ian. Oh, and, no uh, kidding. And he asked me what I liked about it and what I didn't and what they spent. I said, I just drove it from Portland. He went, Oh, that's brilliant. That's the cars for blah, blah, blah. And we ended up talking until it was like, it was like 11 o'clock at night. We were up to 1.30. Um, watching wow. the cars unload for RM. And uh, it was really, that car did lots of those things. Yeah. And uh, 
the problem was it it ate money like nobody's business. Sure. Uh, it's a 97 I6 with a lot of miles, with not a lot of records. I, I violated all the things I tell people to do when they buy a car. Yeah. And I, what I did is I saw this. I don't know if you ever watched, everybody in the whole place probably watched Top Gear, but there was this Top Gear episode oh, yeah. on the B12 Vantage. And it was probably the prettiest piece of film work they ever did. And it was talking about how this car is amazing and wonderful and how we'll not see cars like this ever again. And that was like, on a, I was watching on like a Friday night or something. On Monday, I'd bought that Aston. I said, oh my God, I have to have one of these right now. And uh, I should have saved my money and bought a BB9, which is a good car. Uh, <laughs> but um, in comparison, a seven's a good car. It's just, it's just not fully developed. They only built 6,000 of the damn things. And uh when you have 6,000 of a car, things don't get fixed. You've been a Concord judge for more Concours than I can count. Which came first, the judging or the writing? And what does it take to be an effective Concord judge? That's a good question. Uh, what came first was the writing. I was writing for Grassroots and Classic and like a bunch of other stuff too at the same time. I had my column in Classic and Hilton had asked me, this is, this is 12, 13 years ago. Hilton had asked me if I wanted to judge as a special media guest judge. And I said, I was there covering the dang thing anyway. And I'm like, sure, I, I'm in, caught me in. And it was great. And so I judged and I did, I, I knew, I, I mean, I restored at this point, I'd restored five or six cars. I knew about cars. I bought a craft ton of cars at auction. I'd sold stuff at auction. I knew what cars looked like. I knew what was right with Porsches. I know everything is, is nine air cooled nine elevens. I went, I mean, that was my high school and college job working on that stuff. I know I'm inside and out. And so I went there and I paid attention and asked questions and didn't act like I knew everything. And they, they said, hey, that's great. We'd love to have you immediate judge. We'd like you to be a full-time permanent judge next year because you really people were really impressed with you. I got a letter back from Carolyn Van Angle, who used to run the con, who just retired from running the Concord. I said, that'd be great. So I did that. Then uh, a little bit later, La Jolla asked me to judge because they heard about me, and I judged once at La Jolla. And then I judged, then I got asked to judge at Pinehurst and Greenwich and Radnor Hunt, Tim McNair asked me to judge at Radnor. Uh, and it just kind of grew from there. And uh, I kind of found my feet in it. And to, to be effective in it, you can never, ever, ever forget that the reason you're there is because the person with the, whose car you're looking at brought his car there. It's the mm -hmm. only reason you're there. And the most important people for the judges, not necessarily everybody there, but for a judge, is are, the, are those owners. And... Uh, I saw a tremendous amount of good examples. I had some great judges to judge with, uh, which was really nice. I had Matt Orendak, who now runs Spanish Concord. We judged together a number of times, uh, who works for Haggerty. I judged with Kinney, I think, once, which was also an instructive process. And I, don't, I just had really good mentorship in that. And now I'm a lead judge where I go and still find myself learning things. Uh, and what I do is I... And, you know, there's a lot of one of the things I think is interesting. There's a lot of push to get younger judges into this situation and people in their 20s and things. And I have to tell you straight away that when I was in my 20s, I did not have the maturity or the emotional intelligence to talk to these people the way you need to talk to these people 
in, a, in not in a subservient way, but in a respectful way, but in an authoritative way, uh, in a calm way uh, that's necessary mm-hmm. to do this job. Because it's, it's a lot more about people relations than it is the car stuff to a certain degree. They have to feel like you've done a good job, like you know what you're talking about. And that they've been that that you listened to them and heard their stories because that's the best part of the whole thing. The stories you hear from these people on some of these cars are are just amazing, just amazing. You've judged for dozens of Concord. What are some of the highlights from that work? Well, Yoko Moss and I judged one time uh, at Lime Rock Parks Concord, and that was super fun because he's a crazy person and he's got great stories and he's a brilliant <laughs> race car driver and he really knows cars. And so that was a pleasure. Uh, the people you meet, I mean, through judging and things, I got to be friends with good friends with Bill Warner, who's a really good friend and a yeah. serious mentor for me in a lot of ways. And he's been just instrumental in so many things in my world and cars uh and will always say kind things about me and he knows better he does it anyway though uh i've judged with keith a couple times that's been really neat because keith really knows stuff and it's just it's just fun and the highlights of the p the friends you meet and the friends you make yeah uh, it's it's just unparalleled and you know i always come away learning something either from an owner or a judge usually both and that's kind of a neat thing. And, you know, the, and there are certain judges out there that know everything. And they are so annoying to me as a, as, a, as, a, as a fellow judge as well as an exhibitor at times because you can't know everything. Even if you're like the NCRS C2 Corvette expert, yeah. you don't know everything. It's impossible. There's too much to know. Like when did bolt plating transition from one type to another? Or did it? Or... Did they then use old bolts in a 66 bolts in a 67 when they ran out of 67 bolts? Of course they did. And those are the questions. Those are the judges get so rigid. PCA is sometimes the biggest offender. I've been a member for 30 years, 35 years and at the PCA. And they, they go so crazy about dust. It's like if there's a piece of lint on a carpet, they will literally mark off points sometimes. And, and that's just crazy town. It's not about this. It's about celebrating the car and what it is and the ownership's experience with that car. It's not about making people feel bad. And when it gets to be making people feel bad, it's a bad, it's, 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 it's not working. It right. drives them away. Yeah, and they don't come back. They do not return. You know, to that end, last year you had a brilliant idea. And... I want you to tell us a little bit more about the Isolation Island Concours d'Elegance. Okay. I've got my commemorative mug. Um, <laughs> made, and my, my gravity designer guy made for me, made me one of these. Uh, so after Arizona auctions in 2000, uh, I, I came back from Arizona and things were a little weird. Then I went to Amelia Island and right after Amelia Island, that that Tuesday, I had Madison Avenue Sports Car and Charity Society lunch. And so I went to New York for that. And we're sitting in the meeting. And they said, part of New York is being closed down and and being and by the National Guard because of COVID. And I was with my friend John. I said, get in the car. I'll take you where you need to go. We need to blow town right now. And when that happened, I knew that we were done. I, I knew in, in, in March that this year, that year was a wash. Mm-hmm. You could tell it wasn't going away. We were the only country not taking it seriously. It hit here. It was never going to come here. And then it came here. And I knew we were done. 
I, I knew that everybody was, it was just a matter of time before any, everybody canceled. And I was sitting around my office, this office, and my friend Vu Gwen from PCA, who's their, I guess, executive chairman or whatever his job is, he's in charge of stuff. And <laughs> Vu put this thing online, this little video he made called uh, Cars and Coffee on the Carpet. And it was really cute, like the diecast cars, you know, stuff, you know, stuff like that. And I uh, did them all and did a little video. I'm like, that's really cool. So I called him. I said, that's awesome. Uh, can I steal your idea? Because I got a way to make this different. He goes, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to make an online concord. I'm going to try to make an online concord for diecast cars judged by concord judges. He goes, like real concord judges? I said, yeah, like all of my friends from uh, Amelia Pebble and wherever. And he goes, you think you can get them to do it? I said, Boo, I don't think they're going to be doing anything else, but I'm going to call them. So the first person I called was Bill Warner. I said, so, hey, uh, how would you like to judge an online concord for diecast cars? He goes, well, I'm not going to be doing anything else this year, so I'm in. And, uh, what do you need help with? I said, everything. And so Bill walked me through how to do this and what I needed to be aware of, rules and stuff and entry things and entry caps for prices. And... And was my uh, was my first of my advisors. He became he was an advisor. Then Gordon McCall from McCall's and Quail was an advisor. Uh, McKeel was an advisor. You got well heavy my, hitters for this. I just called people up and they said yes. It was crazy, and uh, and so I figured the only way to make it cool, like really cool, and rise above was the, uh, Ken Gross was one of my head judges. Uh, I mean, the list is. I mean, it's literally a variable who's who of Concord judging and. Tommy Kendall was a judge. Ralph Shields from um, Mopar, uh, Fiat Chrysler was a judge. Uh, name some. I mean, I mean, Hobbs was a judge. Uh, everybody. I mean, I just called everybody up I knew and said, "Hey, I got this idea," and they all, all those crazy people, all said yes. And so it happened. I said, "Okay, we." Threw, and I needed to do it really fast. I knew how to develop on web, and I knew doing a website was the slowest, worst process to do it. And I knew I needed to get it up fast. Because someone else was going to think about this, was going to come up with this idea. So I looked at my options and I put it on Facebook because Facebook allowed, it was the easiest way to structure it, do a Facebook page and structure it out. Now, the editing process on Facebook is a nightmare and they're always changing their codes. So they're always changing the way layouts work. And so that was constantly a fight. Uh, but I'd done other things with car stuff on Facebook before the friend. So I, I was already aware of that. But I knew it was the only way to do really rapidly develop a solution. So I did that. <clears throat> we had our first one. I think we had 137 entries, which was amazing. And from all over the world, which was even more amazing, with no promotion whatsoever, <laughs> except on Facebook. Just, you know, people would share it and share it and share it and share it and share it. And uh, we asked people to donate five bucks or if they could, if they couldn't donate five bucks, don't donate, you know, don't by no means feel, feel like you need to do this to win or anything else. And we'd appreciate to give it to some charity or some organization affected by COVID. Um, I knew there were no sponsors. There was no nothing. It was, I was put on my credit. I, I funded the whole thing on a credit card because I needed to buy all this, do all this stuff and buy things and get things printed and all this and get logos made because we needed a logo. And by round two, we had BMW as a sponsor. <laughs> By round three, we had BMW, Porsche, Mercedes, and Haggerty, and McCall's, and Carlisle as a sponsor. 
uh, for an online concord of diecast cars, but there was nothing going on and we had eyeballs. Uh, our videos that we did for awards would see 20, 30,000 people watching them. And it was just nuts. And I'm thinking, what have we done here? Uh, and people still want me to bring it back, but it was very much something for that time period. I talked to Warner about it about a month ago. I said, you know, I, I, people want me to bring this back, but I don't think it's necessary anymore. He goes, no, it was the perfect thing for the time. Yeah, that's uh, But it went really well. We, we raised a hundred and twenty some thousand dollars for charities. Wow, that's With incredible. Diecast cars on Facebook. Wow, <laughs> what that's a perfect, cool. what a perfect idea. It was bizarre, and it was super fun. I mean, and, P, and the people judging had fun. And I was I was on this panel for SCM, this panel. You know, they did panel discussion stories, and mm -hmm. you know, Sandra was on there. Sandra Button was on there, and a bunch of people with different people from different concourse on there. And they said, you know, one thing missing was. You don't have that walk around community aspect with the online concourse. Sure. And I said, but we did. And they said, what do you mean? I said, we had a discussion. People would post a car with their intro to the car and why they posted it in the story of that car. And 30 different people would say, wow, that's really neat. And wow, that's a great story about this. And people made friends across the world through our concourse because that walking around thing was people commenting on Facebook. And now people, some of these people actually get together and stuff. And uh, one of my friends who is entering in Belgium had dinner with a friend he met in Germany. I mean, on the Concord. So it did have, it was the only one there that had that community aspect, which was really neat. Because that's the most fun part of the whole thing is seeing yeah. your friends. Absolutely brilliant. The shifting gears, the collector car market has been extremely hot for the last 16 or 18 months. Uh do you think this is going to continue or are we due for a bit of a correction or where do you think it's headed? Well, you know, it depends on how you look at stuff. I've been talking, I talked to Kenny about this. I've talked to another friend of mine who works for Haggerty used to work in the bond business. Uh, and you know, we see inflation's here, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a reality in this world right now is inflation. Um, not crazy inflation, uh, but inflation. And, when inflation hits, tangible, tangible assets become very important historically. And these are tangible assets. Uh, and I hate thinking of cars as tangible assets, but people do. When you're talking about something that costs a half a million dollars or more, that's an asset. That's, yeah. an, that's an asset yeah. class. It's not, it's not your Miata or your you know, 85 Carrera. It's, it's something altogether different. Uh, and... Uh, I think some stuff is crazy. Okay, I was doing, I do a pick of the day on classiccars.com. Once a week, I do my pick of the, I, I'm the pick of the day guy that writes a pick of the day of something I find on our site. And I was trying to do a Triumph Spitfire the other day, about three weeks ago. And I couldn't find a Spitfire under 18 grand. And I'm thinking, I've owned one of these things. Really? A Spitfire is not an $18,000 car. It's no. like a good $6,500 car. Yeah. And it's always to me going to be a $6,500 car. But when a Spitfire is as much money as a BMW Z, Z3 or Z4 Roadster, something's fully wrong, or Boxster, something's fully wrong. And so I think that, I think people have been just buying stuff. Like Bring a Trailer has been great, and it's been great as far as a sales platform. But there are a lot of stories of people that paid a lot more money than they should have on cars and Bring a Trailer. Yes. Uh, the late Eric Keller, who runs Enthusiast Auto Group, I don't know if you knew who he was. Um, he passed away about a month ago. And basically the best BMW M place on the spot in the, on the planet 
for MCAR, for a rare MCAR, you go to Eric CAG and get it there. Every time someone paid top dollar for an MCAR on BAT, it went into his place for no, what he would say was no less than $15,000 of work. And these are cars that people paid all the money for. Yes. So they're buying these cars that are perfect and spending 15 G's or as he says, more, more to the tune of 20 to 25 G's to make them right. That's extraordinary. Yeah. And it's not good. And and that people aren't happy because you, when you expect the car to be perfect, that doesn't mean you're spending 20 grand. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a car tax. Whenever you buy an old car, I call it a car tax, (laughs) you know, you buy a Ferrari, it's at least five G's. Yeah. I don't care how good it is, you're going to drop five grand. You drop, you buy an Alfa Romeo, you're going to buy 1500 bucks. You drop, buy a C3 Corvette, you're going to spend three grand. You just are. I mean, there's stuff you want to fix. Old cars are never done. No. They're just yeah. not. Yeah. It's, and that's, yeah. No matter um, how perfect they are, there's always something. And but 15, usually there's yeah. more than one of something. Yeah. Yeah. 15 grand on an E36 M3 coupe. Uh, it is 15 grand additional is is nuts yeah um, that, that's just crazy that's uh, so it's stupid money <laughs> yes uh, it is so what are your thoughts about online auction sites like bring a trailer versus live auctions do you think that I, i've always been of the opinion that live auctions have so many other sensations to them than just visual that you're never going to replace them agreed uh I remember the first time I bought a car at auction and the excitement in the room uh, and it's tangible. And I was sitting with some friends, it's Monterey 2002. And so your friends drive it, the room drives it. If you've got a really good color guy and a really good auctioneer, they drive it. And when you raise your hand, it could be a $30,000 car, $20,000 car, or a $2 million car. Every, all the faces turn to you, and you're like, oh, wow. It's kind of like being on TV, but worse. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you're just so hyper-focused when you're doing that stuff. Uh, and it's just, it's not the same online. I bought online. It's, it's fun, mm-hmm. but it's not the same experience. They both have their place. And their online's never going away. What's going to happen, I think, though, is there are so many online auctions to sell your car right now. There's uh, bring well, a trailer. There's cars and bids. There's AutoHunter.com, which is a classic cars uh, thing. There's P Car Market. There's Stratus. There's 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 there's. Well, and there there are recent newcomers collecting cars and Shiftgate and. Uh, there's Sotheby's, Bonhams, yeah, Bonhams MPH, and uh, Gooding and Company also have online auctions. Yeah, uh, the space is so crowded that it's hard to be see through the noise. And sometimes I'm looking at stuff or looking for something, and I just I just don't want to dig anymore. Yeah, and all of them have terrible search interfaces. Uh, I want to see, I want to be able to click on, I don't want to have to pull it, write things in. I just want to go Porsches for sale or G body 911s for sale yes. or whatever else. And, and I want to do that. And I want to see it. And uh, it just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling combined with some of the stupidest comments you will ever see anywhere on an internet site that are wrong often. Yeah. Yeah. And A lot. 
you know, bring a trailer just did Saturday, Sunday closing auctions. I, which I don't understand. David Gooding is Sunday specifically. David Gooding moved his Sunday auction in Pebble Beach to Saturday because Sunday didn't work. Because, and it's Sunday when you're not at an event like that too. People golf, they have family stuff to do. They have sure. church, whatever they have. It's a terrible time and no one does it. I mean, they really don't. People try to, all the junk lots go Sunday on most auctions uh, because it, it's a terrible, because the room's empty and the room's empty online too. Another thing I've noticed is that, you know, you see a lot of these comments, the comments at, at VAT and other sites have definitely reduced from what you used to see. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be uh, fewer of the comments are from real enthusiasts and more of them are just people who are trolling the room. Uh-huh. Yeah, who just want to rain on people's parade or they want to say, boy, I had a car just like that in 1973. And uh, great. That's great. But you know, it's funny thing is what it reminds me of is when Bill was ran Amelia and he ran Amelia, he did see those seminars there. And one of my he asked me every year to be the microphone guy. And he goes, and there's always it's always a race car driver seminar or a designer seminar. And so I always yeah. had the racing guy driver driver seminars. And so he's like, here's the deal. You never let go of the mic. And if the question is about them and not the people on the stage, tell them they should do it in the autograph session. Mm-hmm. And that's, they're like those guys who grab the microphone and want to tell you about, tell uh, David Hobbs and, and, and John Surtees what it's like to race cars. And it's like, <laughs> you think those guys know how to race cars or Hurley Haywood about how to race Porsches. And yes. it's just like, and they do. But that's what that's what some of those comments tend to be, and those are the ones I find the most annoying. I'm like, yeah, that's great. It's thanks for sharing your moment with us, but really, uh, <laughs> you know, go to a go to a message board and join a car club. They're yeah, really fun. Exactly. Despite all of that, you've got an optimistic outlook for the collector car hobby. Uh, tell us what gives you hope. People are still buying stuff. I mean, dealers can't get classic inventory. I have a lot of friends who are dealers and and brokers they can't get cars they are paying what they would pay retail last year for cars and hoping to make money on them uh it's it's bananas i mean it's just bananas uh there are very few bargains out there there are still some but there are very few bargains out there uh to be had and you know, this, because of the internet and the tool sets that there, people people have the Haggerty price guide. They have other people's price guide. They have Classics.com price guide. A lot of different price tools out there now. Uh, they know what their cars are worth. So, and they the thing is, they want they want to sell it to a dealer for full boat retail. And they're like, well, I can sell it myself, and maybe they can, and maybe they can't. <laughs> True. True. And cars is a pain in the butt. So. What makes you hopeful? I mean, aside from full price, where do you think our future is? What do you See, think I is think coming? Our future is, I think our future is bright. I keep on hearing from a lot of old people. We need to get younger people into the hobby. And they're saying that from the lawn at Pebble Beach or Villa d'Este or Hampton Court, where, you know, the price to get in or quail, right? Where the price to get in is a thousand dollars. Yeah. Whatever the heck. Uh, those people aren't there, but the, 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 the collector car hobby is alive, well, and thriving with young people. Uh, you go to a Subaru meet, go to a BMW Car Club of America meet, 
go to Legends of the Autobahn in Monterey was a great example of this. There are people as young as 16 years old and a guy as guy with a 328 who was uh, 94 and everything in between. Uh, it's just that they're not buying Duesenbergs and they're not buying Tri-5 Chevys and they're not buying that stuff. They don't care about that stuff. And I, I think people think that's not okay, but I didn't grow up in that. I don't care about that stuff either. I never have. I mean, I think Duesenbergs are neat, but I never wanted one. Uh, Tri-5 Chevys, I always thought were old guy cars. I never wanted one of those things. <laughs> buy a Corvette, buy a real car. If you want to buy an American thing, buy a Corvette Camaro or Mustang or a Firebird yeah. or a or a Cuda, buy something good. Uh, so, I mean, I never understood, and I've driven enough Tri-5 Chevys that they're, they're not a great car. They're a 50s car. They drive like a truck. Uh, yeah. But they're not interested in that stuff. Uh, and the thing is, but they are interested. It's interesting. We have this whole passel of kids around here. They have 944s. And they're like 17, 18 years old because you can still get a 944 for like six grand. It needs a bunch of work. And they're all, there's like five of them that hang out. They go to McDonald's and have lunch or or dinner at night, like on Thursdays. And they're like, they all go there. And now there's a couple BMW E30 guys that have joined them. And there's a couple Audi guys. And and all their cars are modded in certain ways. And they just, they're true enthusiasts. And they're under 20. All of them are under 20. I'm thinking, car hobby doesn't look in trouble to me. No. And that is the reason I think it's safe. Because those guys that have those cars... Don't just like 944s. It's just what they can afford right now. Yep. Yeah. If yeah. they could buy a GT1 road car, they'd buy one like this uh, or, an I, or, or a Carrera GT or whatever else. They don't want. They know what they want. It's just a matter of time for them to be able to afford to buy it. So. What are your picks for good value collector cars right now, especially in this market? God, BMW Z Series, Z3, Z4s. Those cars are still... They're the same price as Miatas, and they're a lot more car than a Miata is. Um, a lot more car than a Miata is. Uh, beyond that, uh, first generation, my friends are going to hate me for this one. First generation <laughs> 300ZX Nissans. Okay. The wedgy ones, not the, not the second gen twin turbo cars. Uh, those cars are interesting that they're free. Uh, they're actually cheap on bring a trailer and expensive at classic car dealers. Figure that one out. <laughs> they're eight grand on BAT and they're twenty grand at a dealer, and they're both selling them at those price points for like to like cars, wow. which is really weird. There's a couple of those weird things going on. We're at this point with a couple cars that if you look at car gurus at the prices, they're this price, and you look at classiccars.com or Hemmings or where have you bring a trailer, it's this price, and so there's a and that. that Z3, Z4s do that. Z3Ms are cheap for what they are. Z4Ms are even cheaper for what they are, and they are lower production than the Z3s and a better car. Uh, Porsche Boxsters still haven't had their day in the sun, and there's nothing wrong with those cars. No, uh, there's not. Uh, I've owned two. I've had an S and a Standard, and those cars are an astoundingly great performance car. Uh, uh, having owned a 308 Ferrari in one of those, the boxer is a better car in every single category. Yeah. Every single category. Uh, and they're 10,000 bucks. So there's room there. Uh, and it may be 15 for a nice one. If you get an RS, you know, you get a 550 edition, they're 22, but they are, 
a really good bargain in a lot of car. Well, it's the IMS bearing. So fix it for 1500 bucks. Shut up. It's a one and done fix if you do it right. Mm-hmm. And you can pull the motor in 90 minutes. It's nothing. And the labor is cheap. Uh, so I think those are really, really, I think they're up in commerce. They, the, the Boxster was an iconic car, was a, was a landmark car and a huge success when it launched. Everybody said, this is glorious looking. This is this. No one said anything about egg, egg-shaped headlights or anything else. They thought it was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The minute the 996 came out, everybody thought, oh, wow, those egg-shaped headlights. It doesn't look like a 911. Um, that was my other bargain. That's not a bargain as much anymore, though. 996s were also a great yeah, bargain. Yeah, those, those found their stride, didn't they? Yes, thank Rob Sass and Keith Martin for that because they drove that fast. <laughs> uh, they both write about, wrote about them a lot. Rob Sass and I did a 996 story in Panorama last year that people gravitated to. And what I did for it was I talked to uh, uh, Patrick Long and uh, Hurley Haywood about what they thought of the 996. And I said, so people will tell you that this is this and this and this. Here's what these guys think. And here's this guy that won Daytona and won Le Mans. Here's this other guy that won Daytona and won Le Mans. Maybe their opinions may be are better than your your pal John down the street. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and it made an impact and now they're expensive. And I'm like, damn it, I was going to get one of those. Yeah, too. no kidding. So, <laughs> me too. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, I did the same thing with DB9s. Uh, DB9 Astons were, were, were cheap for a minute. They're still kind of cheap if you get a high mile one, but you used to be able to get a 26,000 mile car for 35,000 bucks. And I remember writing, I'm like, I talked to Tom Papadopoulos. He goes, I go, is this madness? He goes, absolutely. I said, this is the stupidest. My, my pick was like, this is the stupidest thing on the car hobby right now. And everyone should buy one. And now they're 50. Uh, so, but I still think they're a value at 50. I think Aston Martin Vanquish, first generation Vanquish, for how low a production is and how special a car it is, featured in a Bond film, should be at least the same price as a 550 Marinello, and it's not. Yeah. And it's a better car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andy, for getting all my dreams out of reach. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I blame you. He's still going to be out of Get a uh, All right. Go. The question we've all been waiting for, and we do with every guest, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Uh, I had a unnamed manufactured press car this year. Uh, this year. Recent history. Oh, oh, oh this is great. This may and, not be out. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm not going to name where it came from, but I read a performance spec that it said zero to 150 in 15.4 seconds and oh. i'm like that's staggering mm-hmm. and so I'm like, i wonder if it can do it <laughs> oh yeah it did so that was kind of dumb <laughs> uh, it was a toll road that was basically closed because there was no it was this toll road they put in this state that no one drove on because the toll was too high and i was using the press car toll thing i didn't care and so i went blowing down this toll road and stopped and i said i wonder if it'll do this and it did uh, so that was pretty oh. dumb. Um, boy, I've done a lot of dumb things in cars. I've taken cars across the country that one should never take across the country thinking nothing. I bought an Alpha like seven years ago and uh, a GTV6, and I drove it across the country to Monterey from Chicago. And I called Keith. I said, hey, I'm going to do this. He goes, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're gonna yeah, pay. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Driving any Alpha out of the city miracle, is dumb. Right? Never had a problem the whole time. You're kidding. Uh, that's that's got to be the yeah. single most reliable GTV6 anywhere on anywhere, the planet. Period. Uh, and then uh, I took the first Daytona to Monterey and back from, from uh, Falls Church, Virginia. So, I mean. Wow. Uh, oh, my God. I just got it. And that, that doesn't make any sense. That's 3,500 uh, miles. 
Yeah, yeah, sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but it was a blast, and that's what it's for. See, uh, now I yeah. don't feel nearly so bad about driving. I bought a '65 Corvette in uh, in Sacramento in May, and I drove it to Monterey and goofed off for a couple of days because you know it was empty, and I and you could. And then I drove from Monterey to Kansas City over the course of four days in a car. I really I spent. 10 minutes inspecting, threw my crap in the back and left. And uh, car got me all the way home without any any major catastrophes. Oof. But not, yeah, the, not the smartest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Andy, thank you so very much for being with us. We really appreciate it. We've been speaking to auto journalist Andy Reid, who's written for Everybody Under the Sun. We, you can find all the social media links for Andy on DrivenRadioShow.com. Thank you so much for being with us, and we'll love to have you back anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. And this is the most fun thing we do all week. Pretty much. We get to come in here and goof off and talk to cool car people and have fun and all that good stuff. (laughs) You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Mr. Corey Pratt. Yep. And Mr. Mark Groves. Yo. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio.